Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 137 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at charge speeds and how fast do you need a charger to be to actually charge your car. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. Before we start, I wanted to remind you that we've talked charge speeds several times before on the podcast. For a bit more information, why not check out episode 97, the charge speed episode. Link in the show notes. Our main topic of discussion today is charge speeds, but with a difference. We've talked about charge speeds in earlier episodes, but this was from the point of view of the car and how fast the car itself will charge. That was when we talked about charge curves, battery temperatures and state of charge. This time, I want to focus one step back in the chain and look at the charger itself. The recent opening of the second GridServe electric forecourt in Norwich was a pleasant chance for people to head out and try their cars on the latest 350 kilowatt chargers they've installed there. Many different EV drivers made the trek out to the Norfolk Broads and hooked their cars into the fastest chargers available in the UK and were very disappointed that they didn't get super fast charge speeds. But of course, they shouldn't have been. As we've discussed in earlier episodes, the charge curve of a car determines what's the maximum charge speed a car will get in ideal circumstances. There are very few cars on the road that can charge at much above 150 kilowatts for anything more than a few moments. Even the Porsche Taycan, the fastest charging of all the cars in the UK, can only take its maximum charge speed of 262 kilowatts for around two or three minutes before dropping back to below 200 kilowatts. Once you get to 60% state of charge, that drops again to 150 kilowatts and so on. So should those of us who've ordered faster charging cars rise up in protest at this? (laughs) Absolutely not. It's a case of understanding that your fast charging car will not fast charge all the time and will do whatever it needs to protect the battery. Which brings me on to the other side of the charge speed discussion, that of the physical chargers themselves. Now this was prompted by a post written by Osprey Charging and released on their blog about the difference in charge speeds between different power ratings of chargers. The rollout of charging infrastructure is proceeding apace across the country and different CPOs are putting different chargers in all across the land. The thing that eagle-eyed people will notice is that these chargers are different sizes, different makes and have different power settings. If you look at Tesla, their V3 superchargers can go up to 250 kilowatt charging. The Alpatronic units that companies like Raw Charging and Fastned use can go to 350 kilowatts. The tritium units at Grid Serving Rugby can go to 350 kilowatts. MFG have units going to 150 kilowatts. At their hubs, Instavolt vary between 50 and 120 kilowatts. Uh, BP Pulse and Genie Point units top out at 50 kilowatts generally, with their high-powered chargers, such as those at the Hammersmith hub, top it out at 150 kilowatts, etc., etc., etc. So, why the difference in charge speeds? Well, a lot of it is related to the fact that different locations have different amounts of power available to them. If you have a reasonably direct connection to the grid, it's possible to install several very high-powered chargers, such as the tritium 350 kilowatt ones. If you don't have the same connection capability, it's, it makes more sense to install lower charge units. We've often talked about the charging wastelands on this podcast. One of the contributing factors to why these areas don't have a great deal of high-powered charging is that there aren't a large number of high-voltage connections in places such as Snowdonia, the Lake District, and Dartmoor in Devon, 
that can be used to give a site enough power to run, say, four 350 kilowatt chargers. But there is another option, and this is the option that people such as MFG and Osprey have gone for. It's having a high power connection, but installing more lower powered chargers. At first glance, this might seem counterintuitive. If we have enough energy for five of the 350 kilowatt chargers, why would we instead install more lower power chargers? Well, it's all to do with optimising the site for throughput. As Osprey say in their blog post, quote, if you have a site that has 1.6 MVA going into it, there are several different charger configurations you can install. You can have four 350 kilowatt charge points, eight 150 kilowatt charge points, 12 100 kilowatt charge points, 24 50 kilowatt charge points. You get the idea, close quotes. If we take the first example of four 350 kilowatt charge points and imagine that four Porsche Taycans are currently suckling power at their maximum rate, this will only be achieved for around two minutes. After that, it drops down to just below 200 kilowatts, as I mentioned earlier. This means that the four chargers are now using 197 kilowatts each on average, leaving 612 kilowatts of potential charge available for another car to use but no spare charger for that car to connect to. However, if the 350 kilowatt chargers were replaced with eight of the 150 kilowatt chargers, the total number of vehicles that can charge at their average charge speed will double. Your four Taycans can charge, albeit at 150 kilowatts rather than the 197 kilowatts I just mentioned, but you can also have four more cars on the chargers also pulling down 150 kilowatts where acceptable. Which then raises the question of, if you were a Taycan driver, would you rather arrive at a 350 kilowatt charger, find it busy, and have to wait to enjoy your peak charge of 262 kilowatts for four minutes, then drop back to 197 kilowatts? Or would you rather jump onto a 150 kilowatt charger immediately and charge at 150 kilowatts for pretty much the whole length of your charge? Now, let me ask the same question of, a Hyundai Kona driver. Would you rather arrive at a 350 kilowatt charger to find it occupied by Taycans, wait, charge at your peak charge rate of 77 kilowatts for a short time, then drop back to your average charge rate of 64 kilowatts, or get onto a 150 kilowatt charger immediately and have absolutely no difference in the charge speeds? The same question can be asked of virtually all EV drivers. Do you want maximum charge speed but the possibility of waiting because the charger might be occupied, as there's only, say, four of them, or slightly lower charge speed without a wait. Well, I know what I'd like. And before anyone gets on their high horse about needing more power all the time, it's worth having a look at some of the figures surrounding cars that can charge at such high power. At the moment, there are four more EV models available that can peak at 200 kilowatts charging or higher. Three Porsche Taycan models, and the Tesla Model X performance. And between them, these four models account for a little over 2% of the EV market. So, should someone like Osprey or GridServe or MFG be putting in high power chargers across their network that can deal with these charge speeds when, at most, only three in a hundred cars can take advantage of them? Well, your mileage may vary, as the kids say, but I'm saying no. Now, surely the answer lies in the actual difference in charging times, right? 
if you've paid lots of money for a Porsche Taycan that can charge at 250 kilowatts and you're stuck at 150 kilowatts, how much longer is it going to take to charge your car? Three minutes. That's the difference in charge time between a 10% to 85% charge on a 350 kilowatt charger and a 2% to 76% charge in a 150 kilowatt charger under optimal conditions for a Porsche Taycan Cross Turismo using CCS. And those figures have come from a better route planner. For many other cars, including the ID3, the Nissan Leaf, the Kia e-Niro, the difference is zero. It takes the same time to charge on a 150 kilowatt charger as it does on a 350 kilowatt charger, because none of those cars can make effective use of anything above 150 kilowatts. Now, will it always be like this? No. As more and more improvements are made to battery technology, the speed at which batteries can be recharged will decrease. Higher power chargers will be needed to take advantage of that. If we ever want to reach the mythical five minute recharge, we are going to need chargers that can achieve those speeds. And the beauty of a lot of the chargers that have been installed today, Tritia maybe be an Alpatronic, is that they're very often upgradable. As long as the power supply from the grid can handle it, they can have the power circuits internally upgraded to receive a higher charge. And this is, to my understanding, often a case of opening the cabinet, inserting an additional power unit into the cabinet, maybe with a software upgrade to deal with it, and running tests to determine that it worked. In other words, fairly easy. But there is another solution to this, and one which makes this whole question of power to the site more or less moot. Osprey Charging were the first charge point operator in the country to install the ChemPower chargers. Now these little beauties work on a totally different basis to the ones I've already mentioned in this episode. The other makes manage the power on a charger by charger basis. If you have two 150 kilowatt units, they can each handle a maximum of 150 kilowatts each. And if the car they are charging isn't using all of the 150 kilowatts, the surplus is effectively lost. Well, it's unavailable to anybody else. But with the ChemPower units, the power is managed on a site-wide basis. This means the site will provide, say, 600 kilowatts across four different units. If they all take 150 kilowatts, the 600 kilowatts is totally used. But when one car drops its charge speed, because the charge curve for that car tells it to, the spare power isn't lost. It can be fed to the other chargers. So a Porsche Taycan charging 150 kilowatts on a ChemPower charger can get the additional power from the Nissan Leaf that's only charging at 49 kilowatts and the ID3 that's charging at 78 kilowatts. The Taycan could then charge at its maximum speed while the other slower cars also charge at their maximum speed. Well, their average speed. The other advantage of ChemPower chargers is that they inform the driver about why the car isn't potentially accepting maximum charge speed. If the power is limited by the unit, it will tell you so. Likewise, if the power isn't being accepted by the car, perhaps because the battery is cold and the voltage is therefore lower, it will tell you that too. This makes it much, much easier to identify why your charge isn't as fast as you were expecting. Many people mistake a slow charge for an issue with the unit, when in fact it might just be that you're at a point in the charge curve where the car can't take a higher speed even though the charger can provide a higher speed. So what about the supercharger network? I hear you cry. What about the supercharger network? Well, yes, Tesla have led the market again 
when it comes to the supercharger network. They took the decision earlier on to install numerous chargers at numerous locations to allow numerous cars to charge at the same time. But I will remind you that when the first superchargers came out, they were quote unquote only 150 kilowatt chargers. There were also shared boxes which would limit the charge if two cars were connected to the paired units. Since then, using internal software updates alongside upgraded chargers, they can now charge on the V3 units at 250 kilowatts each. The pairing of these units was removed to allow each car to receive 250 kilowatts maximum, although in practice this is limited by the charge curve of the car itself. Will a Tesla therefore charge faster on a supercharger than on an Osprey Kempower charger? Well, not sure. I know that Tesla Bjorn in Norway fav favours the Ionity units with their 350 kilowatt charge speed over Tesla supercharging if he's doing long distance travelling. Make that what you will. So in summary, what this means in practice is that if you're a charge point operator looking to implement multiple charges at a site, it's often counterintuitive to put slower charges in rather than faster charges. But if the power coming into the site means you can put twice as many charges in with a slightly lower power, this can easily increase the number of cars you can charge in a given day without adversely affecting the charge speeds of those cars. EV drivers would, for the most part, prefer to charge immediately at a slightly lower charge rate than have to potentially queue for a charger that gave them a higher charge rate, especially if their cars won't benefit from that higher charge rate. I mean, it's no use expecting 250 kilowatts from an MG5 if the maximum it can accept on board is only 87 kilowatts. Remember, as I mentioned earlier, as of Q4 2020, the percentage of cars that would suffer from arrangements like this is 2.3% of the total market. And they all had a purchase price in excess of £80,000. Make of that what you will. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. Rail passengers with electric vehicles will be able to charge while they travel thanks to the introduction of 450 new electric vehicle charging points at network rail managed car parks at railway stations in the UK. Now we've always said that destination charging is the secret source to making EVs work for large volumes of people and this is Network Rail putting that into action. Network Rail has installed 160 charge points at Reading Station, 111 in Manchester, 84 in Edinburgh, 56 at Leeds and 41 in Wellingarden the city. Electric vehicle charging points will be installed across 10% of the car, car parking spaces, which is approximately 779 spaces, at car parks managed by Network Rail by March 2024. That is a great start, although as the number of EVs on the road increases, the number of destination charges needed will also increase. I mean, sure, there's a case to say that if you're buying a car to let it sit all day in a railway station car park, you might be better off getting something like an e-bike, electric scooter, or even using an electric taxi. But that's a conversation for another podcast. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap. ZapMap is the go-to app for EV drives in the UK. Use it to search for available chargers, plan electric journeys, pay for charging on participating networks, and share updates with other EV drivers. ZapMap is free to download and use with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZapMap in car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. 
hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to become an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoy this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusing. Takes Apple Pay too. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So You've Got Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. Please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingTV with the words The difference is three minutes. Hashtag, if you know, you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, in his quest for world domination, he's decided to move offices at his current job. He's manoeuvring for somewhere he can play the best political game to take over the world. I asked him why he needs to move offices for that. He said, well... A lot of it is related to the fact that different locations have different amounts of power available to them. Thanks for listening. Bye.